Welcome to Pixel Tunes Radio, a podcast where we have fun talking about video games and video game music. I'm Big Earl Mike. And I'm Brian Flow Jam Fuckatron. <laughs> and this is episode 103 John Baker, Toe Jam, Earl, and more. So today we are joined by a very special guest, and uh, we're going to get to him in just a second, but uh, I wanted to explain just briefly what's going on with the podcast. Why, why, is, why is Brian here of all people? Well, Ed is taking a bit of a short break from the podcast, and so I am going to be, you know, having some guest hosts on for the next episode or two, and so uh, I thought what the very first person I thought of when I when I knew that we were going to be doing an episode with uh, John Baker was Brian because Brian's a huge fan of like funk music and mm-hmm. uh, you know that's a, a good chunk of what we're going to be talking about here today. A good chunk of funk. A good chunk of funk, exactly. <laughs> so if you guys aren't familiar with Brian, Brian's been on a couple episodes of ours. Uh, he's a longtime friend of mine. I've known him since you know, how long have we known each other? Like since grammar uh, school. I think. I, last episode we determined it was dinosaurs. It's Joe and it Mac was, era. Yeah, Joe and Mac era dinosaurs yep yep that's how long we've known each other so brian uh started out i think on brian's picks he was like way back on what was it like episode Episode five episode five that was the very first episode that he was on and then he came back you know fairly recently and we did a a point and click adventure games episode yep that was a lot of fun to do yeah and then i've had you on my show yep yeah half a dozen times a while not (laughs) we have quite um, a few (laughs) yeah and so we're going to talk a little bit more about that as well because brian has his own podcast called pixel stories with uh some friends of ours kevin and caitlin Mm -hmm. and so we're going to be talking about that later on in the episode you definitely want to stay tuned and check in check it out later on because uh, that is actually going to be related to uh, this episode. They're, we're doing kind of like a, a semi crossover. Crossover, episode. yeah, yeah, Just yeah. like Spider-Man the X Men, or like Marvel versus Capcom. Yeah, right, exactly. We're gonna take it for a ride. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> an audio ride. So speaking of audio rides, today we have John. Baker. He is the composer of Toe Jam and Earl, the first two games, uh, Panic at Funkatron, which is the second game, and of course the first game, Toe Jam and Earl. So as far as Toe Jam and Earl, um, a good chunk of this episode is going to be focused on the first two Toe Jam and Earl games that John worked on, and then we're going to be diving a little bit deeper into some of his other games as well, kind of taking a snapshot look at his history, and uh, we got a lot of really awesome questions lined up for him, so I think you guys will really enjoy this So let's go ahead and start off with our first track and then when we come back we'll start start the questions off. So the first track that we're going to be listening to is from the very first Toe Jam and Earl game. Uh, It came out on the Sega Genesis and this track is coming to us from the year 1991 and this is Rap Master Rocket Racket by the very person that we have on today, Mr. John Baker. So let's go ahead and give it a listen. Thank you. 
That was Toe Jam and Earl on the Sega Genesis. This track came out in 1991. The song is called Rap Master Rocket Racket, and it's by our guest of honor, John Baker. You know what I'm going to say? What I'm going gonna... to bring this back. This is going to be my thing now. Okay. When I think of this song, it's, you know, dot, dot, dot. Right. So this song, what comes to mind is Little Jerry Seinfeld with a neon <laughs> fanny pack delivering papers. Okay. Because okay. it's kind of like that paperboy bass, yeah. but good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you go from the, the Super NES samples to different kinds of samples, actually. I, I was commenting during the break that I really love those, the scratch samples. Yeah. And John confirmed that they were samples, right? Yes, just the, uh, the scratch and also that snare drum. Right. Yeah, the snare that kind yeah, of comes nice in towards right before the loop, yeah. right? Yeah. So, Toe Jam and Earl, just to briefly touch on the game before we kind of talk about music mostly. Uh, this game was developed by Johnson Vorsanger Productions, and it was published by Sega for the Sega Genesis. And the, the Toe Jam and Earl games, for the most part, have always stayed on the Sega Genesis for the most part. And it's a game that stars two characters, Toe Jam and Earl. They're alien rappers that essentially have crash-landed on our planet. They're originally from a planet called like Funkotron. So they land on Earth and the whole purpose of the game, the whole kind of plot is uh, you're playing as these two characters. You're going around collecting uh, all kinds of uh, scattered pieces of their aircraft, their spaceship. You need that in order to get back home to your home planet, Funkotron. And so you're collecting all kinds of stuff and the game is really outlandish. It's really weird and it, it, it's, it's kind of like a, like a satire on, uh, Amer on like uh, Americana, if you will. So it's, it's there's, there's a lot of 80s and 90s pop culture influence. Definitely, definitely, yeah. A lot of like like it, it, and it, and that kind of reflects in the music, as far as that goes. I mean, the game, I, I like I couldn't picture any other kind of soundtrack with this game. So uh, you know, before we get into specific questions, because we've got a lot of questions lined up for Toe Jam and Earl, I figured we'd start off with a, a brief overview of John's work. So John, how just to start off, how did you get interested in composing for video games? Well, it was kind of a total chance. I didn't even know there was such a thing as composing for video games. Uh, <laughs> seriously, I think I missed out on like that first wave of uh, of video games that were beyond like say like asteroids and mm -hmm. uh galaga and stuff like that like i that was kind of like all i really knew about video games mm -hmm. 
And yeah, so I didn't know about the Sega Genesis or anything. The way I got into it was I had already been uh, composing some other stuff for like, mostly for like uh, low budget TV, uh, cable, like early cable TV stuff. I'd done some like stuff for like little theater, theater groups and different stuff. And I was just kind of getting started on composing. And I was also working at upstairs of a recording studio that a friend owned um, and sort of being there to help people who were doing MIDI projects to get all of their stuff pre-production kind of done before they went downstairs to record onto tape. Okay. So during that time, I was doing these these kind of like health and science television shows. They were like long form, like 30 minute things that had sort of wall to wall music. Mm-hmm. I had been um, playing piano for this uh, South African theater group, like with this playwright who was like an exiled South African dude. And, uh, you know, just going back a little further than that, I had actually studied composition, mm-hmm. um, specifically African-American music, which, you know, mostly would be jazz. But I'd also taken a lot of African drumming as well. Okay. And I had been out of college for a few years just doing music, trying to trying to figure out how to make a living at that. And kind of randomly... A guy named Mark Miller. I hadn't really known him at college, uh, but he had gone to the same school as me. And he moved out to the Bay Area and was working uh, for Digidesign, sort of selling their early like systems before they had Pro Tools. They had a thing called Sound Tools, mm-hmm. which is like a hardware setup and software, which was something that I was using at that studio I mentioned. And uh, anyway, um, he, through some different channels, had um, been asked to submit some music as a pot that would possibly be pitched for an ad that Apple was doing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he had somehow gotten my name and he's, I sat down and played him a bunch of stuff and we came up with something that was, you know, that he thought was a good direction. It was kind of a funky dance kind of number. And uh, at the time I had a, a an Akai S1000 sampler and a Casio FZ1 sampler. And between those two things, I could sort of get a lot of different sounds, drums and a lot of different synth type stuff, but I would have it all midied together basically and then run it to either DAT tape or, or analog tape. Mm-hmm. So kind of steering it back towards the uh, story a bit, the, the pitch tip for the Apple ad didn't, didn't go anywhere, but he liked some of my compositions. And then shortly after that, he landed a job being an audio director at um, Sega of America. Mm-hmm. So then he, he could compose in like one particular style, but he wasn't that versatile as far as some of the other st- styles. So he started amassing a group of kind of a stable of like freelancers that would... Um, be able to help him like accomplish his goals you know of getting these tunes done mm-hmm. so the first thing that he called me in was this game so this is the very first thing i ever did for video games that's pretty cool yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah and uh he introduced me to greg johnson you know who sort of like was the mastermind behind it right and uh, i went up to his uh to that the um office they had up in nevada california and uh he played me some stuff that he liked, some funk stuff, some hip-hop stuff, um, and we talked a lot, looked at some uh, pictures and some early prototype stuff. You know, he was very specific about what he wanted. He's a giant funk fan, Mm -hmm. and he's like, I don't want it to be too jazzy, I don't want this, I don't want that. So I went home with, like, a lot of ideas floating around in my head, and he also would beatbox things. Like, I this is kind of beat I'm thinking about, you know, for the theme. Like, he would would sort of uh, just... (laughs) <laughs> he was really, really big at. He, he would try. You, you couldn't tell what he was thinking. Was is this the baseline? Is this the hi hat? Like, right. It, it was all. It was all vocal. So I went home with like a lot of ideas. You know, we'll get to this later. But I didn't have the actual tools to listen to it. You know, the way it would be played back. So right. 
I created what I thought were like six decent instruments, like on a sampler, mm -hmm. on the Akai sampler. And I said, um, you know, I'll write everything using this this group of instruments, and then we'll we'll try to emulate that on the Genesis hardware. You know, when it gets to that point. Right, um, right. Later, we we had a much better way to work on the second game and a bunch of the others uh, Genesis games I did. But yep. you know, this this one, no. Yeah, uh, it was very, very uh, manual, and um, I'll, you know, I could describe that in a bit. Yeah, I, I, I think I know where you're going with that, and I definitely have a question lined up regarding that. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting that answered. Now, I've, I've noticed that you tend to gravitate towards the funk genre, even like kind of outside of the Toe Jam and Earl series. So I know you, you had mentioned that you studied like a, like African music. Is yeah. is funk? Or, or jazz or like what's your favorite genre of, my, of music to write for and, and if it's not funk or jazz what what is your favorite well let's see um, I mean at the time when I did these projects like funk and jazz yeah funk and jazz and and fusion sort of like stuff in between the funk yes. and jazz world yeah um, was that's kind of where I came from um, when I started playing the keyboards that was what I was listening to um, our uh, our high school had this really ancient cool um, synthesizer mm -hmm. and there was an electronic music class and I spent pretty much all of my free time messing with that synthesizer <laughs> <clears throat> but um, prepping for the that, days of toe jam and Earl <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, I mean prior to that like in elementary and junior high school I was playing flute mm -hmm. and I had this really cool teacher in seventh and eighth grade who um, had this class called Instrumental Workshop, which mm -hmm. was just like all the kids could just bring in any tunes they wanted to learn, and then everybody would learn them on whatever instrument they played. Hmm, that's um, really cool. And it was all about like improvisation and kind of transcribing stuff, and just it was kind of freeform. And during that time, uh, that that music class had all these Wurlitzer pianos, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I started messing around with that. And then I, during those two years, I kind of switched from playing flute to playing piano. Mm -hmm. And I got really into, yeah, mostly, uh, I was mostly self-taught as far as piano and uh, more about improvisation than, you know, learning written music. Right, right. So that's kind of how I got into it. Then from about age 16 on, I had, I bought a Fender Rhodes and I was playing in a band and we, you know, it was mostly rock or top 40 covers of the day, but mm -hmm. I met this really uh, interesting bass player who was very funky, uh, who had moved to town during high school and... Uh, I ended up kind of having a long musical association with him that I think a lot of it kind of informed the funk direction because he was like a very funky bass player. Mm -hmm. I ended up drafting him into another band when I was up at college and he wasn't going to that school, but we we he lived about 60 miles away and he would hitchhike up to play with us. And then <laughs> one day he uh, there was like a snowstorm and he just ended up staying up staying up at our school and not being a student and just we just did this band for like years wow that's funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's pretty but, cool uh, under his uh, you know under working with him we wrote a lot of music too and a lot of it a lot of the toe jam and earl kind of flavor kind of um is me trying to channel like what he, what he would have played on bass a lot of it okay so you um, were very like influenced by the, the the like funk styles that he was kind of bringing in to that then Exactly, That's and cool. and his his like main influence was Stanley Clark. He could yes. he could play like every Stanley Clark tune, yeah, and and play it really well. You know, then he later got into Jocko, but he was basically you know his Stanley Clark was really uh, top notch. Those instruments in the '70s were just you know you'd go to a music store and there'd be a clavinet there and an Arp Odyssey and, and a Rhodes and um, I definitely 
love the technology too just like mm-hmm. um the piano was great but i liked you know the the electric sounds and i kind right. of gravitated towards that and yeah i wasn't like it wasn't until later much later that i actually listened to a lot of like regular mainstream funk that wasn't in the jazz you know that wasn't being done by like a jazz keyboardist or something the the place where i went wesleyan university they had a uh pretty world-renowned like um, ethnomusicology department and uh, um, a world kind of a lot of world music teachers that were the experts from whatever country's music they were like traditional masters of so there was a guy who was like a traditional master of uh, Ghanaian drumming and he uh, would teach you know total newbie you know westerners like us uh, to forget about tapping your foot and to just feel feel the count instead of trying to count it out or like feel the vibrations like in your like in your chest or in your body as far as yep. like yeah yep yep cool. and also feel and also just feel the pulse of the whole thing instead mm-hmm. of like trying to stay on top of it by like by externalizing the beat by tapping your foot it's more about internalizing it and mm-hmm. instead of like saying like one thinking like oh where's the one it's like forget about the one you know it's like right you're, you're you, so in in like traditional African Ghanaian music uh, and in a lot of other music from around that area, like the bell, the different types of cowbells they have mm-hmm. are that that is like the skeleton of the tune. And if you, instead of counting one, two, three, four, you count, you, you hear the bell pattern in your head. And that way, you know where you are in the piece, no matter what, because you internalize that bell pattern. Mm-hmm. And every, every different drum part that the ensemble plays that all go together to create this really cool mesh of sound they all key where they are in the beat off of that bell pattern so mm-hmm. and it creates a lot of back and forth kind of call and response right right uh, yeah i mean i feel like when it comes to not only video game music but really any kind of music i think a lot of people are so focused on listening to what they hear and not necessarily uh, recognizing what they feel as well i mean there's so many emotions that kind of go along with it you'll feel like that the hairs on your neck stand up when you hear something that really just kind of lights you know a fire under you and i i think that's pretty important so that's it's interesting that you're kind of touching on that what we want to do is go ahead and move into our next track this is another track from toe jam and earl and this is again the 1991 sega genesis game this is funkotronic beat and this is again by john baker Thank you. 
Welcome back. That was Toe Jam and Earl, the 91 Sega Genesis masterpiece. The track was Funkotronic Beat by Mr. John Baker. So, uh, what do you think of this one? Okay, Brian? so this one, what's going through my head yeah, is yeah. Chromio's Needy Girl. Okay. You know the breakdown where yep. it's just snares and scratches? Yep. I'm like, like, they must have been playing this, mm -hmm. and they're like, all right, we're just going to borrow. <laughs> they were playing Toe Jam and Earl, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> Chromio's done that in a lot of their songs. Like oh, yeah. Needy Girl, um, opening up. Yeah, like a lot of, um, I think it was around like, I want to say 2007. 2006, were, I think, maybe? Seven? Yeah, yeah. They were doing that. Okay. So that's, okay. that's my corp. I, I, I love how the whole track just has this walking vibe, which a lot of funk tracks yeah. do. I, I just picture like walking like on a campus. Like a you saunter. Know? Yeah, a saunter. Just like, you know, you've got like, for whatever reason, your shoulders have grown like two times the size <laughs> that they normally are. <laughs> and you're just, you know, kind of like sauntering down the road and you've got giant big baggy pants. I don't know what it is about this track, <laughs> but... You know, a lot of these tracks in the Toe Jam and Earl series always like they're head bobbers. Like they make you yeah. oh, no, get up yeah. and groove. You know, so you've, you if you don't head bob to these, then I, I don't know. That's, that's, if stop maybe, what you're doing, get into the groove. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Some really interesting layers in this track, particularly like if we if we take away like the the sampled drums and the sampled scratches that we were talking about before, there's almost like a whole nother layer of bass that that's kind of buried in there. I was gonna say that it's like bass on top of it, and it works. It's great. It's double, fantastic. It's double bass. Double bass. <laughs> Yeah, it's like yeah. stacked underneath there, and uh, you you had like what almost sounded like possibly a flute in there. Uh, it, it's 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 hard to kind of diagnose certain sounds when it comes to particularly it was a the song. Sega diagnose? It's a song sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's sick. It's got a bad case of funk. <laughs> uh. So this one, Funkotronic beat, just the beat really does drive it. It's, it's got a great rhythm to it, a great cadence. When you were writing a lot of this stuff for the Toe Jam and Earl series, particularly this first game, did you use gems for this sound driver for, for this game? Uh, no, because it wasn't done yet. Okay, so um, gems was not around. So Yeah, it was just, they, they were working on it, and the, the guy I mentioned... Um, Mark Miller, who got me and a couple other people a lot of these gigs, mm -hmm. his uh, his older brother wrote the gem system. So oh, okay. it was kind of it was kind of in house with us for a little while, and um, before it kind of went out to to other composers. Uh, Mark Miller's older brother John, they uh, you know introduced me to him, and when I had all this music and it had been approved by the developers, then it was time for us to take the the MIDI sequences that I had and the um, basically the note information and which instruments they should be, mm -hmm. and then I sat down with John prior to him having. Uh, gems like working up and running and he was like I would tell him like okay so on the f track one okay it's uh, the synth bass sound like a Moog bass sound mm -hmm. okay it's gonna hit it's gonna play like uh, a quarter note on beat one mm -hmm. bar one like so I just kind of dictated like every 
song and he kind of like coded it in in like hexadecimal right right yeah and, and then as far as the tones he between him and him and mark and i think i off scene there was another guy who who became like a a, a good friend of mine later but had been tasked with basically uh, getting an early version of that gems and creating some patches with it mm -hmm. uh, because it's really similar to uh, programming a dx7 synthesizer mm -hmm. because it's it's basically using fm or frequency modulation synthesis right it's fm synth right so jim hedges knew how to program the dx7 synth really well and uh, he was a, a bandmate of mark's back in the day and uh, he kind of got a gig to create a sort of a general MIDI sound bank. Mm -hmm. But before that was kind of released, there were, there was like some early instruments, like there was kind of a version of a bass, a version of like a, like a muted guitar and stuff. So we basically kind of raided through those patches and I said, yeah, let's do that. Like, let's let's change it a little or, you know, I, I don't remember exactly whether we were able to tweak patches. Yeah, because they didn't sound exactly how I wanted them on the first game mm -hmm. until later when I got gems for the second game. But, right. um, but for example, like that, that sound that was kind of flute-like that you heard. Yeah. Um, that that was supposed to be like a muted electric guitar, like a funk guitar. Ah, and, okay. But because of the way the FM synthesis works, is you could also hear like another operator that was like playing a sine wave at that frequency, that sort of a more fluty, pure tone mm -hmm. that wasn't enveloped out the way I had you know I had thought when I was composing it. Right, like when you, to the way that you had intended it to sound. Right. So there were a lot of things that weren't exactly as intended, and like the um, one of the main things is like in the. Uh, in the sort of like main overture theme of the of toe jam and earl um i had a bass line and a clavinet line and there was something about them on the patches that the uh on the genesis patches they didn't sound right so we pitched them up an octave mm -hmm. we did that we did that on a bunch of the instruments just so they would read like they wouldn't come through a tv they were too low frequency and stuff now as far as the limitations would you say that you enjoyed the limitations that the Genesis provided, or did you prefer to work with like more advanced sound hardware? Well, you know, since I didn't have a choice, I, I learned to enjoy it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, as time went by, when I, when I actually got, you know, got hold of the gems system and was able to create all my own patches, then I enjoyed it more because, yeah, the limitations were there, but it was a lot of fun, you know, kind of trying to create new tones and uh, see how far you could push the hardware. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to yeah. say you did a good job with that limited palette. <laughs> yeah, as far as definitely. like with that that baseline when it comes in and it's like all over the place, mm -hmm. like a couple octaves apart. It's like yeah. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, there's some funny stories about like the the baselines that I was writing on this thing later in like '95. Sega commissioned a few people to you know to do like CD albums of of their of older soundtracks yes but i've heard i've heard i know where you're going with this i've heard your i think you did one for toe jam and earl yeah i did yeah yeah and, and it's uh, really good stuff yeah and the bass player i used for that was this guy I was playing like bar gigs with and stuff named jamie brewer mm -hmm. really excellent excellent bass player and really really good at slapping like he's incredible yeah. at it and uh but i so i was trying to teach him these tunes off off this and um and off stuff from the second game mm -hmm. and he was he was confounded but he like he was like i'm gonna learn this and 
It is. It's true. Like the stuff would jump out all over different octaves and stuff. And, right. And he finally like nailed it, and he was like, "Thank you, man. Like <laughs> you just expanded my, you know, my riffing repertoire." <laughs> That's awesome. But I, I had kind of written it thinking like, "Yeah, this is possible to play." I was thinking, you know, about my my old friend from the other band, Wayne, and like it was like, "Yeah, he would have been able to do this." So I I just you know kind of wrote what I thought you could play, but in reality, it was kind of a, a bit of a stretch for a real bass player. Right. Yeah. But, I think I think that possible. happens pretty frequently with video games, like. You think back to the way that these tracks are composed, and especially on this limited hardware, uh, you know, if you were to go and replicate it with real music, like real instrumentation, it, it almost sounds like, I don't, I don't want to say wrong, but it sounds like... <laughs> It, like something's off and it's just because a lot of the times I, I, I kind of feel like the, the musicians have to kind of you know rearrange how they're playing to you know fit as best as possible with the uh, you know practical impossibilities that some of these uh, compositions on these games sound yes and then one other point you know before we move on is that uh, the nature of of MIDI so you know I would write all of these tunes on a, a MIDI sequencer mm -hmm. um, performer Mark of the Unicorn, a Motu performer, and uh, it lets you either have your music be quantized, you know, like line up to a grid, you know, like quarter notes, eighth notes, triplets, whatever, or you can be unquantized and just be more human sounding, which would be more like just recording into a tape recorder. Right. But because I knew that the Genesis playback system could only could only break down a beat into so many different um, subdivisions, so I think it was similar to like a thirty-second note triplet, something like that, mm -hmm. or it might have been sixteenth triplet to get like the swing and feel of the kind of funk sound that I was trying to get um, that felt like human but not really like robotic but more kind of swinging you know mm -hmm. I had to like play around with which quantization on my sequencer that I would use to because I, I knew I had to hard limit the quantization or the or the machine would make would do it for me and make the wrong decisions mm -hmm. so yeah I think I arrived at most of the tunes a lot of the tunes um, the smallest subdivision was like a 16th note triplet and within that so to get that sort of swing feel that's that's what i leaned on and it's a little bit more uh, pronounced than most people would actually probably play they would play kind of play in between the beats a little more right right it does give it like a certain it's it's kind of regimented into that particular grid but it's what i what i felt was you know the right thing to do so anyway yeah just that's like another limitation it's like i couldn't make a beat fall exactly where i wanted it to and mm -hmm. i had to choose between two really close alternatives that's really interesting it's it's like trying to come up with an idea of something that you want to put in a video game as well I mean you uh, you know we've talked to other composers before and they've they've all for the most part uh, like a lot of them try to make music that kind of impacts people and I feel like with these with these particular tracks from toe jam and Earl it, it's music that really stands out it's music that you know kind of wakes you up it, it makes you realize that you know you're, you're playing a game but at the same time you're playing something that has a lot of character and has a lot of heart and i think that's what the creators for the game were really going for uh they were going for something that was kind of snarky and kind of uh you know hip and cool and that was exactly what sega was going for back then i mean that was mm -hmm. their their moniker that was exactly the 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 audience that they wanted uh they were completely the opposite of nintendo 
And I think that's why Sega really did so well back then. Yeah. Um, and this is coming from a Nintendo fanboy, like, way back in the day. I was going to so. say, exactly. I mean, you, you look at the character design for yeah. Toe Jam and Neural, you have an alien with a backwards hat, and he's got, like, this uh, chain, a big chain. Like the Flavor Flav chain. Yeah, like yeah. that. And then the other guy's wearing sunglasses. It's like, okay, and like yeah, swim yeah, trunks. Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel like these guys showed up on the planet, didn't have any of this stuff, uh-huh. found it when they crash-landed, and they were yeah. like, all right. Uh, you we're know. humans now. Yeah, we're humans now, right? <laughs> which actually, coincidentally, really kind of ties back into the, the second game, which was uh, which was a little bit of a departure, at least gameplay-wise, from the mm. first. You know, the first was more like top-down, uh, a bit like isometric, sort of, and, uh, you know, it, it, a little bit like a roguelike, in a way, like yeah. dungeon. You had, like, th- there was a roguelike mode, mm-hmm. and then there was a fixed mode. Right, right. Play. And I was all about fixed mode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I Personally, that's just the type of gameplay that I like. I like a game where I can go in and it's going to be the same type of game every single time. It's not going to change. Yeah. But for those type of people who did want to randomize the game, that option was there. And essentially, you're going around the entire game trying to find all that equipment to bring back to your ship. So what ends up happening, the characters find everything that they need they get back and go back to their home planet however they've brought humans you know human beings with them and that leads us into the second game of our toe jam and earl home alone toe jam and earl 2 home alone right <laughs> toe jam and earl in in panic on funkotron and this game came out in 1993 for the sega genesis this track that we're going to be playing is luanda's love and this is a really funky groove, so let's let's pop right in and get to grooving. This is your boy Toe Jam. And his funky, fresh, heterosexual life partner, Earl. For years, we've been digging on all these grooves that you kids be flossing on your MP triples. And now, we got mad flows coming your way. Toe Jam and Earl's flavor players. Yo, lame dude, tell them how they can pop it. Um, sorry, what was that? You know, show them how to ragamuffin. Sorry guys, not fully grasping what you're getting at here. 
Just read the papers already. Oh, why didn't you say that to begin with? <clears throat> Toe Jam and Earl are back. And now you can rap just like them with Toe Jam and Earl's Flavor Players. Grab the Flavor Players tube and, with your parents' permission, pop open the liquid cap. Place one end against your cheek and press the button on the other end to inject a small amount of Planet Funkotron goo right into your flesh. Now, wait five minutes. Anytime a, uh, fresh beat plays, you'll start rapping over it with finesse. It's that easy. Hey, is this stuff legal? Why don't you give it a try, nerd? <clears throat> All right. Yo, yo. I got the sweet melodies. The rhyme casualties of dope felonies in my teeth. This beat is raw, without flaw, the bass can draw From a jaw, tone it down, don't be a clown, now dig the sound Turn the frown upside down See, even a knuckle clock like him can rhyme with our flavor players Yeah, so if you want to be a Jimmy Jammer like this wackadoo Send us 15 gold rings to Toe Jam and Earl's Flavor Players, P.O. Box 8677, Branson, Missouri 65615. Yo, Luanda, play us out, yo. For real. All right, welcome back. <laughs> that was drowning in bass, <laughs> bass guitar. <laughs> uh, all right, so mine for this one is, this is George Clinton versus Ray Parker Jr. And they're having a funk off. Like, just, a funk off? Yeah, a funk off. Like they're, like they're strolling down the streets and then, cause there's like, there's these two, like these parts keep okay. going back and forth and then they kind of like dance with each other for a second. And yeah. then you have like the little Ghostbusters, like the wee, you know, yeah, like the yeah, little, yeah. there's like little parts of it. Yeah. So that was, that was my take on it. Okay. I liked, I liked the, like the I panning. said, that, that oh, yes, the, yeah. the stereo panning was yeah. great too. But that duality, where you have those those two parts, and they're mm -hmm. kind of it's like one and the other, and then they kind of mesh really well. Uh, it's just, it, and this is getting back to. Uh, by the way, the track was Luanda's love on Toe Jam and Earl Panic on Funkotron, the 1993 Genesis track. <laughs> we kind of jumped the gun there, but you know, it's it's interesting because we were talking about instrumentation a little bit earlier, and. To me personally, I always found difficulty with uh, trying to figure out tracks like this uh, in terms of which instrument was was which. On the Super NES, it was a little bit more defined. You can definitely tell, okay, that's a flute, that's a guitar, yeah. that's, you know, like a synth uh, sort of thing. And with a track like this, you've got what sounds like to me just, as I said earlier, drowning in bass. It just sounds like there's three or four bass guitars that are all going at the same time, it almost is like uh, Spinal Tap's uh, uh, Big Bottom, <laughs> the track where like they're all playing yeah, bass, bass guitar. Yeah, I, I definitely heard what sounded like the the main bass line, the do 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 do, and then it, it sounds like there's another bass underneath that as the track goes on. That's like do 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 do. Yeah, you know what yep, I mean. Yep. And so it, it, again, we're talking about like loads of layers here, but. As far as like the instrumentation on that, now this did use gems. Yes. And and how did how did that work as far as like multiple layers of what sounds like almost like the same instrument? Okay. Well, so so the the when you're writing in MIDI, um, the spec 
of MIDI, one of the things you can do besides turning on a note and turning off a note and specifying how long it plays and for how how hard you hit the note is you can also insert um, a program change, which is just a patch mm -hmm. change, like change to another patch anywhere. You could do it between two notes, doesn't matter. I'm trying to remember the exact limitation, but I think I only had six, I believe I only had six channels of instruments to work with. Mm -hmm. So in order to create like a fuller sound, I wrote it with, I think it was something like 13 tracks. And then, mm -hmm. um, I used program change to fill up any place where one instrument wasn't playing for a couple of seconds. So mm -hmm. in order to, you know, the, the sequence looked, you know, really organized the, at first. And then by using program changes, I could say like, wow, I need the hi-hat to play here, but there, but, but the hi-hat channel is being used by something else now. So I'm going to use program change on the guitar for like two notes and play the hi-hat parts I need and then program change back, ah, back to the guitar. Okay. okay. So like the tracks are packed full um, and it looks like a mess, uh, but if you expanded it out, it would look like a nice orderly list of tracks. Uh, but right, there would be right. way more tracks than the Genesis could play, actually. Right. True, true. Now, I've, I've read a lot of people who have complaints uh, regarding the Gems driver causing low fidelity, uh, like amongst like the various different instruments that mm -hmm. uh, can be used in the Genesis hardware. Mm -hmm. And I understand that the modifications can be made to the instruments to give the music uh, like a richer sound with gems. So, you know, we, when you listen to a gems soundtrack, like a lot of people kind of, you know, a lot of hardcore Genesis fans often stick up their nose at gems and kind of say like, oh, you know, gems isn't as good. You know, have you heard like Hitoshi Sakamoto? Have you heard, uh, you know, Motoi Sakuraba, some of the, you know, drivers that they're using, or even like uh, more Western composers that we've interviewed, like Matt Furness, Sean Hollingworth, like a, a lot of that type of stuff. So if, uh, getting back to mm -hmm. the question, is that something that you toyed around with when creating soundtracks on the Genesis? And if not, like, were you aware of those low fidelity issues? And like, was there a specific reason that you went with Gems? Oh, well, Gems was like pretty revolutionary because it gave it gave the sound designer or the, the composer like the ability to create their own patches. So mm -hmm. um, if they didn't have that system, uh, typically with, at least with the, compo the Western composers that were doing a lot of this stuff, which uh, my friend was like the audio director for, he would just, mm -hmm. he would give them, he would say, write something in a general MIDI spec, like channel 10 has to be drums, you know, patch number 63 is steel drum or whatever. It's like a very ge mm -hmm. generic set. And then, right. and then he provided them a generic set of patches that conformed to the general MIDI spec that mm -hmm. were created y using gems. So they were tuned pretty carefully to get as close as you could sound, you know, to each instrument that was specified. But right, um, the right. problem is a lot of people just went ahead and didn't have, either they didn't have the time to like tweak those sounds or they were just, they weren't comfortable in, you know, editing. So they basically just used them out of the box. And, right. you know, as good as they sounded, they were meant to be a starting point that you jump off and then you start editing your sounds off of. So the hmm. general MIDI set that, um, that most, you know, composers had with gems is does have some of those issues because there it was just meant to be a generic set um, that would like somebody could plug a MIDI composition into who didn't have the hardware at all. Right, um, right. And if they were technical enough or they had the equipment, they could sit down and 
learn how to actually tweak the patches and create something better. So that, I mean, all I can say is I was really glad to have access to the system because unlike in the first game, I was now able to do things like what you heard in that last track where I panned like, you right. know, I panned like the clavinet on, on the left, then on the right, sort of like call and response. And that I got a synth, uh, some like lead synth tones that I wanted to hear, not like what somebody else gave me, you know. And so mm -hmm. I was able to get more of a square wave sound on one sound and, a, you know, a different sort of sawtooth sound on another one and, and create the effect of like a filter sweep by... Uh, using the FM, you know, parameters correctly. And yeah, I'd say, and now the f fidelity issue, I think I know what you're talking about, but I'm not totally sure, but there's like a lot of aliasing, but that's that's more the chip than gems. Gems is just a way of, uh, right. it's just a way, an easy way to code the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, chip. It's not, doesn't impart its own sound. I, right. um, so really what you might, it's a limitation on that sound chip on the hardware itself on the soundtrack. Yeah. Okay. And so what you hear is a lot of aliasing of notes where the the note you want to hear also has like another kind of scratchy like undertone on it. And it's it's yeah. really hard to get rid of that. Um, you can by, you know, by how depending on how you uh, program your patch, you can sort of filter some of that out. But mm -hmm. really the the key is to me is like if you want this stuff to sound better you play it through not like the audio outs like the rca outs mm -hmm. but you play it through the rf connection into a tv because really yeah because the rf connection that um you know was what you had to use kind of back back in the day was mm -hmm. it did something to mellow out those aliasing frequencies and it it just gave it a nice warm sound to hmm. the point where if you you know so if you take these tracks from the game and plug them in, you know, using like the antenna jack on the back of the TV, in, right, instead right. of using like RCA outs to a stereo. Right, like AV. Yeah, you're, you're right, gonna like get, um, you're gonna hear yeah. like the way, the the best possible way this this uh, hardware sounds, in my opinion. Wow, you, that's interesting. Yeah, huh. when you just use like the straight audio outs, you get all of that aliasing. It doesn't get filtered out at all. Over the wow. over the RF, it's like because it's something about the high frequency is limited or something and it just squashes all that out of existence and it gives the bottom a lot nicer feel too that's really interesting mm -hmm. huh and and that i've never would have thought to to use a rf i think a lot of people are just really focused on making sure that the picture is as good as it can look yeah, yeah. and and so you know aav uh, composite definitely looks a lot better than rf it's a lot clearer it's not it's uh, there's not as many issues, not a lot of noise, yep. or as much noise. Yeah. And, <laughs> it's uh, kind of the opposite. I never would have thought that. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. Wow. Now, when when it comes to panning, was that more difficult to do on a console like the Sega Genesis? I mean, how uh, how familiar are you with no, the, I just with how the program? That was, was easy. I mean, I basically just created two copies of the patch, and I made one of them hard pan to the right, one hard pan to the left. Mm -hmm. So. And the fact that it goes back and forth like that, it's not just like, it, it's, it's... I planned out, like a, you know, I planned out when I wanted it to jump around. It's, it's okay, not like an effect okay. that does that or anything. Right. Basically, it's just, um, I can't remember the exact parameter, but, you know, one of the things in Gems was that you could specify which speaker it would come out of. And usually you just would have it on both. But it was, there okay. was no way to have like partial panning to one side. It was all, it was all or nothing. Um, right, right, right. And uh, I felt that was a cool, that was a kind of a cool effect I wanted to exploit there to just give it a little animation. Yeah. All right. 
Well, that's really interesting. So let's move into our next track, and this is going to be our final Toe Jam and Arnold track before we move into some other uh, music that uh, John has done. Uh, this is Toe Jam and Arnold Panic on Funkotron. This is the 1993 Genesis track, and uh, the track is called Funk Down Under. And let's go ahead and uh, get Australian on this. That was Toe Jam and Earl Panic on Funkotron, the 1993 Genesis game. That was Funk Down Under by our guest of the day, John Baker. Panic on Funkotron. This is a really fun game. Have you played it this is. one, Brian? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. I prefer, actually, I prefer this one. Same here. Yeah. To the, to the first one. I like how the first one's top down and yeah. I like the aesthetic of it, but I mean, the second one. Yeah, I just felt like it was more vibrant. Yeah. You know, like colors were more vibrant. Yeah. Like the gameplay was side scrolling now. But if I remember correctly, this area was kind of like in the caves underground or something. It was kind of dark. I believe so, yeah. Oh, so this song for me is okay. It's Sonic's Day Off. Right? Sonic's day off. Yeah, so Sonic the Hedgehog is his day off. He's okay. like sitting back in the recliner okay. and just watching TV. But then he's like, "All right, I'm just going to drink a lot of cough syrup too." <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why. I can't. Why, I can't, why would Sonic the... be drinking cough syrup? <laughs> he needs to slow down. <laughs> okay. So he's making like uh, uh, some drink. Some, yeah, some purple drink. Yeah. <laughs> he's got some codeine. <laughs> Where's he get? He's got Jolly Ranchers and Sprite, and he's <laughs> yeah, good to go, man. Yeah. Uh, this this track, I I felt like it was. There's a darkness to it. Yeah, there is a darkness to it, and and uh, at the same time though, it really has a lot of inspiration from that fusion stuff that we were talking about before, like acid Like that is right out of yeah. like. Anything that you know, Jaco Pastorius was doing, Stanley, Stanley, um, Clark, Stanley Clark, yeah, like all of that stuff. Which I, I'm, I'm a pretty big uh, fan of, like Return to Forever, John McLaughlin, uh, Paco De Lucia, and um, oh, what's the other guy? Uh, Al Dimiola. Mm -hmm. Their album Friday Night in San Francisco. I'm sure you've heard mm -hmm. it, John. Yeah. Right? Oh, it's fantastic Spanish guitar. Really good stuff. It's all like fusion mixed with Spanish guitar. So. A lot of this type of stuff kind of reminds me of, of that era, particularly like the Herbie Hancock stuff that we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, it's all really good music. Um, yeah, I, now, I, I always got in trouble with Greg anytime I tried to get too jazzy, but somehow he let this go. By. Oh, he, he let it slide. You slid, you slid it in. You slipped him. Uh, 
<laughs> you slipped him a uh, jazzy, a jazzy, uh, the sec- a jazzy sonic the second, surprise. The second game, he uh, he kind of like relaxed a little and let me just go, just go wild, I guess. Uh, the first one, he was like really breathing down my back and like really reviewing everything a lot. This one, really? I, you okay. know, this one, I I kind of went more with my gut and like most of it worked out well. So, hmm. I've, and which is really funny because I've read that the developers of the game were more interested in creating a game that was similar to the first title, but I guess Sega was very adamant about like, no, we want to make a game that's more like 2D, like side-scrolling, more like, you know, Mario style, because that was like the in thing back then. And even though the first game sold pretty well, I guess they they felt that it would sell better if they moved in that direction. Apparently, the hardcore Toe Jam & Earl fans are bigger fans of the first game, and that's why they returned to that style of gameplay in the third game that came out on the xbox yeah, that's what i heard but yeah i heard that you know the the second game was rejected by the hardcore guys but right which is funny because if you're not it seems like if you're a, a more like casual toe jam and earl fan your favorite game is the second game and that's i would say i don't want to speak for brian but i'd say that's the case oh right? yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, but it's, t- it's tough for me because i want to like the first game I'm more same here yeah but like I said, if you, if you play it on like the roguelike, if, yeah. No, I'm done. No, anything, yeah. any kind of roguelike elements. Yeah. I just, I'm, no, mm-hmm. I'm I'm the same way. I'm the exact no, same thanks. way. Yeah. Um, but you yeah, had things too, like when you if you fell off the edge, you'd have to you'd go back to the next yeah. level and. Uh, you know, you got all these pre- like, what's in it? You don't know. Yeah, is it, yeah. Is it, is like it a, a critical power up that I need? Like the rocket skates or right. This this second game is very different. So essentially, what happens, as we said earlier in the uh, podcast, the characters Toe Jam and Earl they get back to Funkotron, their home planet. However, they have some Earthlings that have kind of you know hitched a ride on on their on their spaceship so essentially what you're doing is you have to find all these earthlings that are scattered all over the levels uh so it is 2d side scrolling you know similar to like mario you know you know any of that stuff sonic all, all those types of games it, it was really funny too the humans it was. they were so obnoxious yeah. and over the top and right. you know just like just bothering everybody around them taking yeah. pictures and kids screaming <laughs> yep. out of control and like like i was saying before it's it's more like uh you know that snarky sarcastic look at everyday life in americana yeah. you know the the urban elements were, were definitely there uh, with toe jam and earl as far as like their style but I would say that these people that were around were just like very, you know, typical um, uh, American, you know, uh, like Annoying materialistic, people. like yeah, just exa- is exaggerated. exaggerated, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and I think games like this and uh, shows like um, Invader Zim, like the cartoon Invader Zim, it reminded yeah. me of like that sort of style as far as like how it portrayed you know, the, the humans yeah. in the game. But anyways, yeah, so you go throughout the game, you're collecting all the humans and everything to, you know, kind of... You also have these other, like, elements that you can get as well, like these super jars and these teleporting things. Um, you can get coins that can be used um, if you put them in, like, these parking meters, and they'll yeah. trigger, like, different events and things that will change the environment, so to speak, or, like, allow you to, you know, use, like, mini games. You can do, like, little mini games. There's one called, like, Jam Outs, and also Fungus Olympics. So they really kind of still went with that really outlandish vibe that this that the first game went with as well. But I, I feel like they went even more so in that direction of wackiness oh, yeah. uh, with this second game. 
now getting back to the music of course as we were talking about before I you know that it is all written with the gems uh, sound driver it, it's it doesn't sound like anything else that I've personally heard maybe like sonic spinball a little bit but sonic spinball is a little bit more grindy sounding yeah and I think that's the thing with this the gems driver is a lot of people will say that uh, gems soundtracks uh, sound a little bit more like grindy more like farty at points where every yeah <laughs> you know like farty? In, yeah farty <laughs> like some of the instruments are like brah, 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 brah. like they're they're a little bit more like you know the the, the tones that they're using are, are are much different than something here this okay. sounds a lot cleaner yeah a lot stronger sounding yeah. and a lot tougher as well you know clean strong and tough <laughs> yeah there you go that's how you avoid farty <laughs> farty sounds <laughs> So, as, as far as this specific game, you, you had mentioned that uh, he kind of, you know, Greg kind of gave you um, free reign, well, yeah, so to speak. Well, yeah, I don't know. He just, kind of... I guess he trusted me a little bit, you know, after the first one and um, mm-hmm. figured that I knew, you know, what to, I kind of knew what to do. So, basic, basically, so the... Yeah, yeah, the ideas got a little bit more, I don't know, what I kind of want, more towards my main instinct of stuff. Um, but yeah, this one. Right, right. I mean, I, I would I would only be told a little bit. Like, I think for this one, they told me it's like the underworld. It's like there's fire and it's like it's hell basically. So they they would give me just a little description on each thing, and then I would write based on that. Hmm. And by now, I'm I'm not writing using another instrument. Like, so the first game, I'm using uh, an Akai sampler with like things like a patch called Funk Sin and another one called like sin bass and another one called like slap bass and another mm-hmm. clavinet and then like you know uh some sort of a realistic drum set and then i'm basically translating that to genesis now uh, on this <clears throat> on this game i would start out making the the patches that i wanted to use so pretty much all of these ones like we've been talking about there's usually like a uh, like a really synthesized bass sound like a moog sort of sound fat fat right. kind of without a without a really sharp attack that's kind of low and kind of a warm sound. And then there's usually a really uh, percussive slap bass also playing a different type of bass line along with it. Right, right. Um, and then you, same thing as kind of going back to the first game. I usually had like one instrument whose role was like a, a muted out, like picked guitar playing single notes that could be um, mm-hmm. kind of, di- it could also fill in for a hi-hat because it was playing really short notes that basically the plucking sound was like a closed hi-hat sort of and mm-hmm. then usually i would also have um a clavinet which is just basically like a keyboard that a lot of funk people use that sounds very similar to an electric guitar but it's it's a stringed keyboard okay. usually employed with a wah-wah a lot of times and then um right then on top of that i would usually have one or more sort of analog synth sounding things i would program up that were either for leads um, or like that, you know, you know, or like they were doing horn, mm-hmm. horns or organ type riffs. Horns, um, definitely horns. I, that's what I heard is those those horns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and trumpets. Right, yeah. right. So they were they were kind of hybrid. They weren't supposed to be like super real horns, but more like kind of like synth horns, like a Prophet Five horn or something. Right, right. So yeah, I mean that. And, and then the drums were pretty fun to program, too, because, you know, instead of getting... I always wanted a really fatter-sounding bass drum than, than like, the sort of the preset one I had in the first game. And so I was able to create some uh, drums that had more tone to them. And then I would do pitch bends on them, so they would be more like... Uh, they would have, like, that dropping sound, like an 808 that you, like, turn the, the tuning pitch knob on, like... Mm. 
down like a downward sound right um so i, yeah. I love using that and um also uh i was like that studio i was working at um a lot of like the rappers well they were using the 808 kick and they were also doing a lot of stuff with um i i, I don't know where i picked it up but doing like little triplet fills on the kick drum like right before the downbeat like uh like just to kind of right for a transition so for some reason I internalized that and used that a lot on these tunes. But then the rest of it was just basically um, kind of just from my my jazz fusion kind of uh, thinking. And uh, um, yeah, you guys kind of nailed it already, like this kind of the Stanley Clark thing. And uh, right, um, right. P- plus, you know, I, I the 1970s TV shows, all of those had like really funky music. A lot of them, like yes. like Barney Miller, you know, Sanford and Son. Yep, yep. You know, there was there were some really good TV themes in those days, and I think those, you know, for better or worse, those just like got stuck in my head, and um, <laughs> and I think a lot of my when I when I was called on to write like a thirty second tune, I would think, all right, let's got it's got to have everything, and then just get in, do its thing, and get out. Um, right, right. Now now all I can picture is uh, Toe Jam and Earl in a remake of Sanford and Son. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And it would totally fit, you know, you get like yeah. uh now somebody needs to like redo the Sanford and Sons theme song like with the with the, the bass like the <laughs> So you also did uh from what I understand some soundtracks, some additional soundtracks on the Genesis aside from Toe Jam Roll uh that uh were actually kind of similar like Slam City with Scotty Pippen. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh so you composed the entirety of those as well, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, did you use, like, coming off of Toe Jam & Earl, because those games, uh, the Slam City games, came out uh, slightly after that, like around 94-ish. Did you notice that, uh, like, when you were creating the music for that, did you kind of look back on Toe Jam & Earl and say, you know, yeah, let's stick with something similar, or did they ask you to do something different? Uh, No, they didn't ask. They they didn't ask for anything similar or different, but I, I guess they knew... So I was introduced to them by the same guy, you know, the the Sega musical director, and he was like, yes. I think this is the guy, you know, they talking of me, I was like, this is the guy you should get. And they basically, um, they, had, um, they had some stuff in mind, like they played me some different kind of hip-hop stuff that was associated with basketball. Right. Um, and I just listened to a bunch of what they liked, and then I didn't, I wasn't thinking Toe Jam and Earl, but I probably, you know, when I went and sat down at gyms, like, those are the patches I had already created, so mm-hmm. I probably just started from there. But yeah, yeah. But I mean, as far as the uh, the composition, I kind of was trying to get more in line with maybe less of the '70s vibe that I, you know, that I liked, and try to get it mm-hmm. more towards the more modern stuff that they were li- they were listening to, and more like '90s urban hip hop type. Yeah. Stuff, like... So just trying to kind right. of digest that a little bit. And uh, the other thing was that on that game, I can't remember if it was the like the sega cd or something that it allowed you to use more samples than than the old system Mm -hmm. so i had like a couple of sample cds that had some different phrases like some vocal phrases and some scratches and some uh Mm -hmm. some other urban elements there was this um uh it was like a sample cd called la riot and uh Mm -hmm. there was there was volume one and volume two and uh they had like you know just like little vocal snippets little like horn lines and just varieties of stuff you could sample right so i kind of you know i was instructed i think to utilize as much of that as i wanted to and uh, so i that was like probably the first time i kind of you know went through and tried to make pre-recorded samples fit in with 
the stuff I was doing. Really cool. So now, as far as Toe Jam and Earl goes, we understand that the third game had a different composer. Now, you uh, you and I had a conversation about that. Now, uh, from what I understand, you mentioned that uh, the designer Greg Johnson asked uh, somebody else to do the soundtrack, like somebody that he knew? Or... Uh, is this like the third one, like the Xbox one or the new one? Yeah, the Xbox one. Yeah. Um, so he had worked on, um, in between that and sometime around then, he had worked on this project called Choo Choo Soul, which, yes. um, you know, it was originally a CD and then it became like a, uh, like a TV show, I guess, um, that, mm-hmm. he, you know, um, that he's trying to teach kids to count and do letters and numbers and stuff but with a kind of a right so the guy who he got to help him produce that cd was another you know game composer friend of ours from that era Mm -hmm. called uh burke trishman burke trishman yep and he worked on games like total eclipse the horde pandemonium yeah he's done a lot of work with crystal dynamics right right and he was like in the same circle of composers that we were all working you know this the same kind of jobs and so he asked me to do a little pre-production on the choo-choo soul thing to do some claps like a like stomping and clapping like you would hear people do in a gym so right um so that was like all i kind of did for that record but um Mm -hmm. what i noticed was i guess because he i can't remember how it all worked out but yeah he got the job of doing the music for the uh the third game which okay. I, I don't know that I'd actually heard much of it, but he asked me for all the MIDI files for the first two games. So he, mm-hmm. he had permission to use those and rearrange them. And I think most, oh, okay. I believe most of the game was done by doing that. That's probably why your name is listed on uh, all over the place online, because it, it was confusing because if you go and you look up uh, the comp- the composer, it's under uh, uh, Burke uh, Treishman. Yeah. But if... Uh, you go online and look elsewhere, all different other sources point to you as well. And so it's probably just a reference to the fact that uh, they were able to use the original uh, samples that were provided by you from the uh, first two games. So that makes sense. Right, like the basic uh, note information. Like I think he like reorchestrated it with different sounds, but he, he had the MIDI files. Um, mm-hmm. So I like dug through all my stuff and gave him all the floppy disks, you know. And then I, I think on Choo Choo Soul, it was interesting because on one of the tunes, which was about the... I think it was about the high-speed train in Japan, and uh, mm-hmm. there's this little there's this little part while it fades out that's definitely like one of the Toji Mineral Two songs, uh, mm-hmm. just like the rhythm of it. So I, I think Burke probably just had like he had like all the MIDI files when he was helping Greg on that. Uh, that's my theory anyway. But right, I, um, right, that was all buyout music. You know, I didn't retain any rights to anything. So sure, so sure, sure, it's totally fine. Okay. But um yeah but and then the yeah. new one the Toe Jam and Earl back in the groove yeah. that one was uh, under development with with Kickstarter I know they were working on that and uh, I remember seeing that your name was uh, kind of attached to it like they were going to ask for you to to come back and do some music for it but what what ended up happening with that uh, well it just kind of for a variety of reasons it didn't work for me to do like a full pass on that and then so then mm-hmm. the next thing was going to be well Greg had meanwhile found like a young uh, bass player who's He's in some sort of a successful funk band that tours around, and oh, okay. and he had um, he had become enamored with uh, the Toe Jam and Earl stuff when he was growing up, and he'd kind of oh, okay. he'd kind of taught himself to play bass by learning those tunes on bass. Oh wow, that's crazy! <laughs> and uh, that's really cool. And he was like, you know, he was in awe of the fact they were going to be doing a new game, so he started sending uh, samples of his his bass playing and his music to Greg, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. Greg, you know. Uh, took a took a liking to him and had him c- come out here and like met him and started recording stuff and so he got Burke mm-hmm. 
again to um, sort of produce, and this guy mm-hmm. Cody to uh, kind of write or create the grooves. Mm-hmm. And um, between the between Burke and Cody, I guess they <clears throat> created enough tunes, you know, to launch the game. And then, okay. so then I was offered to like contribute like a guest track or something. Right, and, right. And uh, that's when that's kind of when my name got attached to it. Like at first, they didn't think they uh, okay. they didn't think they had money to pay me anything to make a tune. And then they were like, okay, we can pay you for one tune. But uh, without getting too far into it, like it sure, it, sure, just the finances and the. Um, the time commitment and everything with my with my day job and all didn't allow me to do the kind of job I wanted to do on it. So I still have I I'm pretty sure I still have a standing invitation to make a tune for for later downloadable content on there. Nice, um, very cool. So I'm hoping to do well, that because I really feel you know associated with the title and. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, when I, when whenever anybody thinks of Toe Jam and Earl, as far as the music, the music is such a strong standout. So yeah. the work that you did on that, like. Absolutely. I think that it would be really cool if they brought you back. Because games weren't doing that at the time. That was the first game no, where no. like you, you had a baseline and you're like, whoa, what, yeah. what is this here, you know? Especially baseline <laughs> stacked on top yeah. of one another like that. I yeah. mean, you would see it, but it wasn't as popular. Um, but anyways, so actually it, it, this kind of brings us to a, a really good segue into uh, discussing where we move on from the Toji Mineral series. So the first game that we're going to be playing a track from is Gex. Enter the Gecko. This came out in 1998. It's on the PlayStation 1, and the track is called Kung Fu Theater Part 2, and again by Mr. John Baker. Okay, that was Gex, Enter the Gecko. It was released on 1998 on the PS1. It's Kung Fu Theater, Part 2. Also known as Legend of Corandia Book 4, Malcolm Goes to China. <laughs> it had a couple... Okay. You, you know what I mean? It had yeah, that, because yeah. Legend of Corandia 2 had a couple of those hip-hop elements. Yep. Like, th- throughout yep. the whole... 
book there. But, Definitely um, a much more like '90s hip hop vibe yeah. to this. Oh yeah. Uh, even starting off with that like traditional Eastern Asian kind of kung fu style. Yeah. There were a lot of games that kind of took that unique sound and kind of you know mishmashed it with with urban beats as well. Um, yeah, in the 90s, yeah, I think that's fair to say a lot of that was, was going on. I was going to say X-Men uh, Wolverine's Rage on the Super NES used it. There was a track where it's Adamantium like, Rage? Yeah, or Adamantium Rage, yeah. yeah the, okay. the one that's like... Da, 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 and then it's yeah. got the, like, the scratches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So very similar to this. I, I love the background. What I'm noticing uh, a lot with, uh, with John Baker's work is... Mm-hmm. In the background, when you're listening, if you listen, paying attention to it, there's so much like interesting things that are going on. You, yeah. You've got like really cool, like sweeping, swooshing sounds, uh, but then you've also got like uh, there's like something that sounds like an elephant horn or something like that. That's the only way I could just describe elephant it. horn, like That's a it. war war elephant. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> like almost like an elephant's making the noise. It's 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 hard to explain. Like, okay, John, could you could you give us some insight on that? Like what? kind of instrumentation were you using on this game okay yeah so uh, i think that sound i you know i had this uh again a lot of these samples came from a you know a commercially available sample cd disc Mm -hmm. the one that i used the most on this was called heart of asia volume one and heart of asia volume one i forget who produced that cd but it basically had elements from lots of different asian countries really interesting sounds and i think that elephant sounding horn might have been tibetan the horns that they have like those long horns oh yeah okay Um, okay and then there's another sample that you hear that's kind of like an entire uh, groove that gets pitched down a half step and comes back every so Mm -hmm. often and it that was i think a thai street parade a sample it's like a whole oh, okay. like a whole like group of people playing uh, playing interesting you know percussive instruments and so yeah I would I basically found whatever I thought was a cool sounding you know instrumental texture and mm-hmm. this one um, there you know there was some instruments that I played in as like with a keyboard but a lot of them were just like phrases that I lifted and then dropped in and adjusted their you know their pitch and their beat to like fit and then there were like you know some some sort of like other cliched like hip hop hop samples that I think I got from a a local DJ and you know just it's kind of a pastiche of a lot of different stuff Uh, actually yeah I mean so there's some MIDI composition in there I think some some of the drum programming and uh, some and a little bit of the bass but almost everything else was just like phrases that that I kind of like put together in that sort of style that was kind of big in those days right Uh, just samples kind of stacked upon one another yeah Uh, what were the lessons that you would say learned or the challenges that were faced when transitioning from the 16-bit era to the more like polygonal 32-bit era of gaming, mm-hmm. uh, specifically regarding the music? Mm-hmm. Did you feel that you had more opportunity as a composer? Well, yeah, certainly there was more opportunity. I was kind of back on ground that I, you know, that I had sort of known better than the 16-bit stuff as far as how to generate a sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, now I was back to where I could use sampled you know audio what we had with the with the playstation was uh, a really cool tool that that sony let uh, developers use this was done you know through uh, crystal dynamics and they basically right. loaned me this cool piece of hardware and and software that went with it i forget what the hardware was called but it's it was like a board that you like could put in your in your pci slot in your mac 
Okay. And it was like a sort of a sample player that you you loaded in whatever audio samples that you wanted to. You had to convert them and make sure they looped and they were at a certain, you know, you would play along, play around with the sample rate a lot to make the loops mm-hmm. uh, seamless. Mm-hmm. So, for example, even if you were doing uh, like, like a flute or a clarinet or something, you would get like an acoustic recording of that instrument and find like a mm-hmm. small part of the sound that actually you could loop on on your computer find find a way to use as little memory as possible and have a, create a sustaining tone that way. Ah, okay. Uh, and then the uh, the Sony board and software allowed you to use that like it was a synthesizer in your in your arsenal, and mm-hmm. you could assign it to be played off of one of your MIDI tracks again, so you could compose live and hear exactly what it was going to sound like on the PS. Now, regarding the PlayStation, did you also do the soundtrack for the Nintendo 64 version as well, or did, did somebody else convert that version over? Because uh, I believe that this track is also on the N64. Yeah, no, I didn't convert. Um, I I don't know who did the, who did those conversions, um, but no, I, I wrote it all just uh, for the PS1. Okay. Um, I, I believe Real Time Associates were the developers of the N64 version, so it sounds like it was a different developer. Probably took the uh, the same tools and, and items and everything from the uh, PlayStation version, and you know, probably retooled it. Yeah. Uh, you know, compressed it. Mm. Probably a lot of compression going on because you know the, the N64 capabilities. But then there was also a Microsoft Windows version, which I believe that's where we're getting the cleanest version of this track. Do you, are, are are you familiar with that version as well? Mm, no, I haven't heard that version but that oh really um the the version that i that i uploaded to you guys has um Mm -hmm. is direct from the outputs of the ps1 Mm -hmm. so it's about the cleanest version i could find and and it you know just to 16-bit stereo after that but uh right i guess getting back to the the kind of the transition from doing like the genesis type stuff to this is Mm -hmm. it was uh, yeah, I was back on familiar ground. Like, okay, it's samples. I can use more channels. I don't have to worry about the polyphony. I don't have to worry about the uh, quantization. I can sort of just work like the way that I normally ha- would work anyway. Right, um, right. And in addition that on this project and on probably the next two that we're going to listen to, I was also tasked with creating the sounds that would be played. Whereas, you know, usually the composition fee is like you get paid for composing something. So if you knew how to actually program a sound bank and lose your own sounds and make mm-hmm. them fit within like the specified uh, uh, memory budget that was like a separate gig on top that you know would give you a little bit more money so mm-hmm. that was kind of a nice bonus for me because I actually enjoyed that you know that aspect of tinkering around with the uh, with the actual audio files and trying to optimize them to to do what I wanted to do rather than using somebody else's kind of set set or having them basically take mm-hmm. my composition and try to uh, use other instruments that they had, you know, to, right. to do the job. Uh, okay. So, so, yeah, in that sense, it was a bit similar to the <clears throat> to the Gems work where, you know, I was responsible for the, the tones as well as the music composition. Mm-hmm. Now, just to look in a touch a little bit on the game itself, Gex is a three-part uh, game series. Uh, there was Gex, Enter the Gecko, uh, and Deep Cover Gecko. Those are the three games. Gex itself, the first game, uh, is a side-scrolling, kind of like Mario, Sonic, uh, you know, it's a, a typical, like, mascot-type game. Gex kind of was uh, more like Sonic in the sense that he was the anthropomorphic uh, gecko who had a quote-unquote attitude problem, you know, uh, similar to Bubsy, like, all that type of stuff. Did he have, did he have sunglasses? He did have sunglasses, uh, yes. Yeah. So Enter the Gecko is the sequel to that first game. It's not side-scrolling. It is uh, 3D. Uh, they basically, full, like, took 
you know, full capabilities of the 3D engines of these mm. uh, consoles and, and systems. So this one, he's more like, I don't know, it's it's kind of like a James Bond sort of thing. Like James Did they give Bond. him a suit or a tuxedo? They gave him a tuxedo, yeah, yeah. And that's pretty much it. He has like a, a girlfriend or something named Agent Extra, who's like also a secret agent. I don't know. Uh, these these games are, are, you know, it's it's always fun to me to see you know where they go with these types of games because the, yeah. the plots are always very very loose very you know silly and slapsticky you gotta collect all the coins oh yeah and they're, they're yeah. always you know collect collector fest which is yeah. fun i like those type of games yeah. banjo kazooie like that type of stuff so yeah. but this game definitely kind of more in that 3d realm aspect uh, as far as what they tried to do with it and uh, i think i for the most part these games all got really good reviews uh believe it yeah. or not particularly on the playstation so um i'm kind of like you know after hearing this music and hearing the you know seeing the game in action mm -hmm. i kind of want to you know track these down add them to my collection yeah i'm 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 there too <laughs> they're pretty fun that's something that like i've always seen i've been aware of and mm -hmm. it's just kind of like slipped right under the radar because it's like do i want to play this Mm. Yeah, I mean, I always assumed, you know, Gex, uh, alright, okay. But, you know, it actually, you know, gameplay-wise, it looks pretty fun. And, yeah. you know, if, to me, it's like if the music is as good as the gameplay, or if the music is even better than the gameplay, then it'll make me want to play the game even more, so. Yeah. Alright, let's move into our next track. So, this is actually from the third game. This is Gex 3 Deep Cover Gecko on the PlayStation and N64. This came out in 1999, so the next year... And uh, this is Holiday Broadcasting, also known as Totally Scrooge. And uh, this one is totally appropriate for the current holiday season because it's December. Christmas is right around the corner. so And get... we're totally Scrooge. And we're totally Scrooge. Exactly. So let's go ahead and listen. <laughs> Thank you. 
right, welcome back. That was definitely festive and definitely appropriate for the holiday season. That was Gex 3 Deep Cover Gecko on the PlayStation and N64. This is the 1999 release. The track was called Holiday Broadcasting, also known as Totally Scrooged. Okay, so for me, yeah, I yeah. pictured this is like a, a sequel. Okay. It's Ferris Bueller's Christmas. Okay. And like something happens, he got himself in a pickle, and uh-huh. he's running through a mall at Christmas time. Okay. And like, yeah, you have the different, you know, like, uh, what's it called? Like the different melodies, like the, um, what's going on? Like, uh, like the, what's, what's the you're talking about like the different Christmas tracks? Like yeah, the, like there were a few different songs. Yeah. Like, uh, like the, well, not, the, not not like a motif or anything. No, it wasn't, wouldn't like a or. Medley, medley thank yeah, you. thank yeah. you. It's, it's a medley, medley. Yeah, um, <laughs> but just every every time a different one kicks in, like he's at a different store in the yeah. mall. And okay, you, you okay. know what I mean. Like that's that's what I picture. I need this movie to come out. I yeah. need to watch this yeah. movie. <laughs> I I definitely got a sense that it captured what the name was going for with holiday broadcasting. Totally scrooged. I I felt yeah. like first off, there's just so much going on in this track, and mm. it's all good though. It's not like it's not like messy. It's more like full and vibrant, outlandish, wacky. Oh yeah, definitely cartoon. Yeah, definitely like cartoon. Like the old Looney Tunes type style. And then when you throw in those classic Christmas songs as well, I think you had like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I think, maybe Frosty the Snowman, like a couple of those like more classic holiday themed tracks. It's just, it kind of makes your ears perk up and makes you want to sip some hot cocoa in the night, so. Good stuff. <laughs> now, Gex 3 Deep Cover Gecko came out, uh, I believe it was the year after. Yes, it was. And again, this takes the series much more in a uh, more like... A deeper, more undercover way. Yeah, like deeper, more undercover, like spy style. They got a Playboy model uh, named Marlise and- Andreda to play Agent Extra, who is, again, his love interest slash partner mm. in this in this game. So again, takes on a more uh, 3D style when it comes to the gameplay. There's also another character in the game called Alfred the Tortoise, and he is literally pretty much Alfred Penn worth uh, Bruce Wayne's butler so he kind of helps you out Gex has a lair now that he can go back mm. to and it's like a cave got yeah. a lot of computers and... this track in particular plays uh, in like a like more ice you know frozen winter wonderland oh, type level. of mm. track yeah at mm. ice level yeah <laughs> um, that is the gist of it from what I understand there's another character named Rex who's a red dinosaur who Gex like put in a block of or he, he took him out of like a, a block of ice that was there like he mm-hmm. was able to thaw the, the block of ice and uh, that's during the holiday broadcasting channel episode so that's kind of where this track is you know right around the time of when this track yeah. plays so so tell me about uh, the composition on this one like what this was just so crazy where what was the inspiration oh, yeah. for that? Uh, well I mean I was just told that there's an evil Santa and um, basically just go wild with Christmas stuff and um, <laughs> I, I was told that at the beginning there's like a flyover sequence that is sort of like the cameras flying over this like Christmas holiday village and so mm-hmm. they told me like approximately how many seconds that was and then then it was gonna like kind of go into the music and then 
we could set the loop right there. So I wanted to have mm-hmm. like a big sort of overture, the beginning that had, uh, you know, a little bit of kind of traditional Christmas stuff. Like I think it had like Hark the Herald Angels Sing and right, yeah. uh, kind of mixed with uh, some other stuff. And then, then like kind of a big uh, Hollywood sort of reveal moment and then boom, right into the tune. Mm-hmm. So, and I st- when I started getting this rough demos of it together, the, uh, the one of the producers was like, we were trying to figure out like, like what would be the groove of the main tune? And he's like, well, all the kids love ska these days. He was just kind of being funny, you know? And so, I mean, I didn't have a guitar sample for the for the ska, but I was like, all right, I'll just do, I'll, I'll use like a three single guitar note samples and play them like, right. like I'm playing a guitar. And so that was kind of like the idea of how to tie together all the different little pieces was get this sort of ska background going. Then I'm going to need trombones. So like I... I put trombones stuff in there and this was like when I first was into Danny Elfman and okay. he was re- he's really into using um, sort of the diminished scale so I, I kind of made like this motif up with the diminished scale and it also kind of goes back further like you guys were saying to uh, some of the stuff in Warner Brothers cartoons like that I didn't know at the time but the uh, the guy who wrote um, the powerhouse theme Raymond Scott right so Raymond Scott you know I mean because I grew up watching Bugs Bunny and you know that that was like all over they they use that track all over the place, mm-hmm. especially the fast part that has like that diminished scale. So I don't know. That just kind of I guess I just kind of subconsciously had all that stuff in my brain, and it just kind of came out. But uh, yeah, all the other um, the other stuff in there. I mean, it was just kind of fun trying to fit together as many Christmas songs as I could. And you know, obviously because the apparently the Santa was going to be a bad Santa, so I I made like Frosty the Snowman be in a minor key, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure why legally. Uh, got to use all that stuff, but I guess it got cleared by their company. So, I mean, re- nowadays, if you try to write anything that sounds like anything, you, you know, you get shut down by. Right, you know. right. So I think maybe because it was a farce, they, you know, if it's kind of a parody, you're allowed to, you know, get away with breaking copyright and stuff. Right, um, right, right. But you know, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't worried about any of that. They were just like, ah, just go to town, and just do whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I grew up listening to a bunch of all that, all the Christmas carols, and then all those like TV Christmas things like Rudolph and Frosty the Snowman and right, all that. So right. yeah, I just kind of threw everything in and the kitchen sink and just try to make it all kind of work together like a puzzle. <laughs> no. Cool. Now, as far as as far as your role with uh, Crystal Dynamics, was that more on like a uh, like a hiring base? Like, did they hire like a third party who hired you, or were you actually working for Crystal Dynamics? At uh, that point? No, I was just working as a freelancer. So, um, so okay. like they they basically would just pay me for the for like one particular game project. So, like with mm-hmm. Gex, they had um, they had like three other composers. The first the first one I worked on, Gex two. So I only mm-hmm. contributed, I think, four tunes to that, and there were like twelve or more other tunes by diff- like three other different composers. But uh, right. on this one, I was the only sole composer for like all the levels, except for one particular level that Burke, uh, mm-hmm. that my friend Burke did like one level. But mm-hmm. yeah, I pretty much did the rest of those. And um, this one, yeah, it was like so it was a, like a much larger chunk of work. And yeah, so I was basically working out of my home studio, and then I would, uh, you know, I'd, I would occasionally go down there and play them things and get some feedback and then mm-hmm. go back home and keep working so hmm. yeah okay very cool 
So we're gonna go ahead and move into our last three tracks, and all of these are based on uh, Zynga properties, actually, believe it or not. And I think this is uh, one of the first times we're ever playing some <laughs> Zynga uh, materials. Now, you also did some work for Namco Bandai as well, yes. right? Uh, I believe it was Spl yeah. Splatterhouse for the, the remake of Splatterhouse, the, the reboot. Right. Yeah. I now, that that wasn't a composition, though. That was more like sound design or sound direction. Uh, yeah, exactly. Direction. Uh, sound, sound design mm -hmm. and um, audio direction, yeah. Prior to that, also, there's uh, I had like another role at a place called Locomotive, which was owned by THQ. Prior to my joining them, they were called uh, Pacific Coast Power and Light, PCPL. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, by the time I joined them, they had decided to um, focus on handheld stuff. So we, the first game I did for them was uh, on the PSP. The first two games I did were PSP titles. And those were right. ones where I was like the sound designer and the, the guy who integrated the sounds and sort of audio directed it. And those were both, well, the first, they were, they had an agreement with Disney. So um, we were doing Pixar licenses. So Right. Like cars on the PSP, I understand. Yeah, so I did right. that. The cars on the PSP, We then we did Ratatouille on the, P, on the PSP. How does that compare to working with games that are like original ideas? Like when you're working with an established property like that, uh, you know, we've interviewed other composers like Matt Furness who said uh, when he was talking about Mickey Mania that he did the music for, and he was saying how like Disney was kind of like breathing down his throat, like, you know, really wanted him. Like they had a really specific idea of what they yeah. wanted. Can you like, I just picture like the the producers like over over the shoulder. Can you move? Can you move that up? Can yeah, move yeah. That note up. One? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just just half a half a bit. Yeah. Half, just just half of a no yeah, no yeah. no one sixty. No 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 one thirty second. One thirty second. Yeah yeah yeah. Next instrument. No no not yeah. trumpet. Next instrument. Yeah, it's, just, it's just completely a nightmare. Exactly. <laughs> so would would you say that you had a similar experience or was yours like more hands off, more like free flowing? You know, more like the rest of your um, your well. Tracks so this was this was like an in house job for me. So I was like. I was kind of involved in the politics of it a bit, but it was like the main, my main producer that I worked with, Dave Gray, had to deal with the Disney guys all the time. And, and that was, oh. he, he shielded me from almost all of it. And well, <laughs> and I out, wasn't yeah. writing music for these. I was doing sound design and audio direction. So I basically, okay. well, f for Ratatouille, we were really fortunate. We had uh, all of the Michael Giacchino music. So we had like the actual real score and it was broken down into a lot of tracks that were, some of them were like not even used in the game. So we had just like hours of stuff to pick from and it was all in mm -hmm. surround though. I had to mix it down to stereo, but I got really familiar with the music. My job was basically just place the music, figure out where to put it in which level. And it was already all approved because it was from the movie basically. Um, Oh, Car okay. Cars, okay. we decided to do a different thing and just use all licensed like rock tunes from like what would have been the right, you know, just the kind of feel of the movie, but they weren't mm -hmm. necessarily from the movie and they weren't, it wasn't original. It was all just like, like you were driving around with a radio on kind of. Okay. So what my jobs in those were like creating all the sound design, putting all that together. And then um, there was quite a bit of Disney oversight, obviously on the voiceover uh, because the voiceover for both, uh, sure. for both of them were using the actual, you know, talent from the movie but specifically mm -hmm. recording for the games so for those yeah we basically got the takes you know we we 
provided a script, and then they, it was done by some other people at, at, at mm-hmm. various voiceover studios, and then we would get it, edit it, and drop it in. So there right, wasn't a lot right. of back and okay. forth there, except for with the, uh, the Lightning McQueen character. We couldn't get Owen Wilson. He didn't want to record his voice for the game, so they got a sound-alike. And oh, the guy okay. was good. He sounded just like him, but, the, you know, they there's a lot of approval that has to happen for that. So they just got a random guy to just be like, wow, yeah. wow. Well, they got a guy. Wow. I mean, right? it's not a random guy. It's a guy who's like known to be able to do that guy's voice. Like there, there are oh, like really? certain okay. people who can do like certain celebrities and they have a sort of a career from it. So, <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's move sigh. into uh, our last three tracks. So this next track is Farmville, believe it or not, on the Facebook web uh, was released, and this is 2009, and this track is Haunted Hollow, and I'm telling you right now, you're going to be hearing some Danny Elfman, so let's give it a listen. Welcome back. That was Haunted Hollow from Farmville in 2009. Very, it's a very spooky tunes track. You know, I like the direction this podcast is going, where you have got like a nightmare before Christmas yeah. feel in the past two songs. Yeah, yeah. I'm digging it. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, and we had mentioned Danny Elfman before, but this just straight <laughs> up screams Danny Elfman. So I, I got to ask, John, was that. I'm assuming that was the inspiration behind this oh, one. Oh yeah, it was it was kind of part of the creative brief, you know. It was like something like, you know, like Danny Elfman would do and yeah, they gave, they gave me a couple of examples. I mean, I didn't need the examples. I kind of know what he does. But um yeah, they gave me free reign to be, in, you know, inspired by Danny Elfman and uh that's 
basically what I did. I, it mm-hmm. was kind of a marathon session. I just got I got the idea and just started going with it. So th- I'm assuming that this was based on some sort of like expansion, like for around that time of year, because that's the thing about the, this developer and the way that they create games is they kind of create games that are like living, breathing things in the sense that mm-hmm. they react to our own world. You know, you have these games that, you know, uh, when it's Christmas, you're getting Christmas-themed items in your inbox sort of thing. And, yeah. uh, you know, mm-hmm. same thing for Halloween, St. Patrick's Day, mm-hmm. the whole nine yards, right. you know, 4th of July. So w- was that the case with this particular track? Like, this wasn't originally written for the initial game, but they wrote it, uh, or you, you had written it because they were like, all right, we're going to, you know, implement some Halloween elements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, I mean, um, this was one of a series of um, expansions that they did. So when I got here to Zynga, the Farmville theme was this, it was done by a guy named Steve Kirk, really good musician, composer, and mm-hmm. uh, but it plays incessantly and it's like a 30 second loop. So they, I guess at starting at, at, I don't know, 2011 or sometime, they decided to start um, doing these expansion farms that would have their own mm-hmm. different theme that would replace the original music. And... Yeah, I ended up doing like a, a bunch of them, like, I don't know, maybe like 12 or something. And this, But this one was the first, yeah, this is the first one I did. And, in a, you know, probably in a way, one of the best. I, I like some of the other ones I did, but what was fun about these is the game designers would, you know, they'd have a pretty specific inspiration they wanted to follow. And then I would like immerse myself in it. So one of them was like a uh, Stravinsky Rite of Spring, and um, I like, totally like immersed myself in the one section that they liked and then I basically MIDI MIDI, uh, orchestrated it and then I took that same orchestration template that I came up with and then put my own melody into it so I kind of created my own like Stravinsky tune and so like (laughs) sort of like every assignment that that they had for this was kind of similarly interesting as a challenge that Hmm. you know strangely I think I learned uh, quite a lot more about orchestration in in doing these than I did, you know, in the previous, like, 20 years, so. Right. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, it kind of, ex- it sort of expanded my knowledge outward by, like, making me learn stuff, basically get the score and just, like, study stuff and learn it. But on this one, I mean, I just kind of did it by ear because I was sort of already, I was already a big fan of, of Danny Elfman's, like, kind of style and the sort of, kind of, like, zaniness and all that, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it definitely evokes that that feeling of uh, Danny Elfman, Nightmare Before Nightmare Before Christmas, or like Batman Returns, like that type of yeah. music. Uh, Edward Scissorhands. Even, like, yeah, I was gonna say even like a movie soundtrack yeah, where, yeah. You, where you had the the violins come in. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely had that feel to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's move into our next track. This is from another, uh, this one's actually not a Facebook game. This is a mobile game called Mafia Wars Shakedown. It's on the iOS, and it came out in 2011. This track is Main Theme, again, by our guest of honor, John Baker.
right, welcome back. That was a very funky track. <laughs> that was Mafia Wars Shakedown for the iOS in 2011. Uh, that was the main theme from that game. Now this was a, a kind of like a, a standalone title that was completely separate from the Facebook version of Mafia Wars. So this yeah. was its own thing. Uh, it was an iOS exclusive. And then I guess from what I understand, they shut that down around like 2012 mm -hmm. and it was no longer available. Yeah, it cracked down organized crime. They so did, no yeah. Surprise. yeah. What, what, what are your th thoughts on this track? I, I, I picture Shaft uh -huh. driving the Spy Hunter car. <laughs> okay. That's, okay. That's my, that's my uh, feels. <laughs> feels. For this one, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. Now I, I, I definitely get that vibe. I, I get the, you know, maybe a Shaft walking the streets or like looking around, maybe like a Dirty Harry sort of th feel to it. I, I could totally pick picture lyrics too to this, <laughs> like uh, really like soulful like R and B, like what you gonna do if Mafia Wars gets you? You know, it turns into like a Disney uh, '80s theme opening. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be a war. Yeah, so. <laughs> a Mafia War. So that's that's kind of the vibe that I that I got from this one. But I I I love this era of like funk '70s like. Yeah. The bass you know, came back. Yeah, yeah. Like, like. Yeah. <laughs> actually, I was gonna say Tim Fallon. This sounds yeah, very much like fair. a lot of Tim Fallon stuff. So, definitely. At, now, uh, as far as this game goes, John, what, what's what would you say the major differences that you would experience between composing for like mobile games versus co uh, console experiences? Is is there that much of a difference, especially in that in now? Uh, you know. During, during the current video game era? Um, not so much. There's very little difference. Uh, I mean, some of the differences I have to deal with are the amount of memory that you can use up for your music. Mm -hmm. So it either gets compressed down, put into mono, or both. The length is usually a lot more truncated than you would find on a console game. Well, especially in a free-to-play game where they want the download to happen fast. They don't want you to, uh, you know, you're typically not allowed to have more than 100 megs of assets happen in the first download. So they want people to be able to um, do it without having to go to Wi-Fi. And uh, Right, right. That that limits what you can have for like the, the music that's loaded upon first, you know, your first experience. Like it is possible mm -hmm. to, you know, download to like push other music, you know, after the game is installed. But uh, yeah, this, the, a lot of the challenges have to do with that, how to optimize it for you know, for low bit rate and, and... Right, right. And speakers, like the smaller speakers as well. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, different mixing decisions that happen. You you cut out any you anything that's important that happens below like 100 hertz mm -hmm. is basically not going to be heard if, mm -hmm. you're, if you don't have headphones plugged in, which a lot of people don't, right. don't have. Yep. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of compromises. But I mean, on the higher end mobile titles, yeah, it's virtually indistinguishable from what you would do to compose for a console gig. Okay. A lot of these mobiles, ones that I've been doing, are free to play. They're not like large downloads. You don't want to lose your potential audience because they're, it's just an impulse. Like, oh, I'll try downloading this, you know. But mm -hmm. uh, if it's like a hardcore gamer game that's been put on mobile, you know, the people are going to be like, all right, I don't mind if I have to download a, gig, a gigabyte worth of assets, you know. It's, it's right, worth right. It. Yeah, so, because they want that deeper, yeah. richer experience and maybe less of a like casual right. yeah. uh, game game yeah. romp. Like Hearthstone or Soulforge, where right. you have the game, it's on another platform, and they've played it, and just, oh, I can play it on my phone. Awesome. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Or so, Yeah, exactly. Uh, some of the, um, the Natural Motion, uh, which is a Zynga-owned uh, studio now, puts out a game called CSR2, which is a car game. 
And the car models are so good. They're basically, it looks like a console game. And, oh, okay. Uh, and the music is, you know, high bit rate, stereo, really good mm -hmm. music tracks. But they basically know their audience. Their audience, they sort of built them up mm -hmm. with the first game. And uh, mm -hmm. the, um, the expectations are that it's going to be, you know, photorealistic, like amazing 3D art and, uh, and the sound, you know, to match. Right. And yeah. They have the, the audience that's patient enough to, uh, you know, for the long download. So. Well, let's move into our final track. Uh, this is from Battlestone. This is another mobile game that came out in 2013. And this track is the main theme, again, by Mr. John Baker. And let's give it a listen. Welcome back. That was our final track of the day, Battlestone on the mobile platform. This is 2013 release, and this was the main theme. Uh, now, this was kind of like a, a mid-level game in terms of like comparing it to like uh, the more casual experiences yeah. from like a mobile platform or like a Facebook platform, so to speak, like Mafia Wars and Farmville. Mm -hmm. And this was a much more geared towards like hardcore gamers in, in a way, but it was still kind of like middle of the road. Um, yeah. So it was like a swords and sorcery uh, kind of action RPG kind of thing where you would like press buttons, collect coins, that sort of thing. So, you know, and I, I kind of feel like the track reflects that. What did, what did it do? Yeah, it's pretty this? epic. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of um, Bahamut Lagoon for Super Nintendo. Okay. Almost had like a square soft yeah, yeah. vibe to it, you know, where it, it was very... Very like you get you get into it and it builds and it builds and another part comes in and you're mm -hmm. like oh I can't get and it's like oh it does it does get more epic you know yeah so yeah it's good I I would say that um, 
I felt like it was a, uh, a more Western composed track, definitely than than I would say like more of a Square Enix type. No, absolutely, type yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of the times um, Western composers typically use a lot more of the choruses. That was used kind of like a little bit in like the Super Nintendo era. Yeah, I mean, it's like it had hints of it. I guess yeah. is what I, what I what I meant to say. I, uh, I feel like they would always do <laughs> solos where they would have like yeah. a solo performer in terms of like the the vocal effects. But mm. here, what we have is kind of like a a very like a staccato like da, 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 kind of you know vibe to it. And then you know you've got those uh, driving kind of vocals in the background those like you know more operatic vocals that are kind of like soaring kind of like underneath everything so i didn't feel like they were standouts which you would typically find on like a, a jrpg sort of thing so mm. so i gotta ask uh you know how do most video game music projects start off for, for you in other words like do you typically see any of the games themselves in action before writing or are you typically like given a description of what the developers are looking for i know you kind of touched on that a little bit uh with the gex series where they were like you know you know we're looking for this sort of thing and then this flies over did, did you kind of see that more in the day like the earlier days with like the sega genesis or or would you say that that kind of happened more later on in, in the later years of your composing of video games? It's kind of like both all the time, you know? I mean, it really depends how far they are along in the process, um, what mm -hmm. they could show me. So this was a studio that, well, they had a game called Golden Arrow, mm -hmm. and uh, they had their own studio. I forget what it was called, um, November Group or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Zynga bought them as an acquisition with this game in mind, and uh, they came on board and worked here with us. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it changed a bit because it, it inevitably it had to to become more of a social game and such things. And they, um, they had a, a pretty completed game when they came in, so they showed us. We were able to see pretty in-depth uh, what it was going to look like. Mm -hmm. And they had, I think, I can't remember, they may have had some placeholder music in there. They had some placeholder sound effects, and we replaced everything. And then for the music, they didn't have like a lot of input. They just wanted something epic. And so I just started listening to different, all different stuff, you know, from like television stuff, game stuff, uh, mm -hmm. movie, movie stuff, um, and kind of. So like, <laughs> one of my kids was really into like epic sort of trailer music. So I listened to a lot of the stuff that he was listening to, just kind of try to digest that style a bit. And uh, yeah, I think it, you know, it, w it was pretty fun doing it. And then I think a little bit of my, um, you know, a little bit of like Bach or like Baroque stuff kind of crept into the melody of, for me. Because right. I'm, I'm like, I'm like a huge Bach fan and um, especially the Art of Fugue. And I think that um, some of the melody was kind of influenced by that. And yeah, definitely. The, uh, the little kind of like staccato violin thing, that was kind of how I started it. They had like a reference track that was like from some like, like license free, you know, one of those license free, royalty free uh, music sites that you know right. people just try to sell their tunes on, and yep, there yep. was there was a little tune like that that was kind of like that with like little staccato or, or spiccato you know strings, and yeah. then and I then you know the more I noticed also like Hans Zimmer was using that a lot in um, mm -hmm. in his scores and stuff. It was kind of like the flavor of the day, so I took that and kind of made like a little intro tune out of that and they were like they went wild over it so i was like all right i'm gonna stay with this you know <laughs> um, <laughs> right right um but then yeah i mean the 
what I did didn't really accompany any one particular part of the game. And then I wrote like four other tunes for it, and they ended up doing kind of a strange programming trick where they would just like swap between the tunes in different times that the times didn't make as much sense to me as I would have thought. But mm-hmm. um, so they were like constantly switching between these four tunes. And um, I mean, it kept it from getting old, but some of the transitions didn't work for me. So I think this piece as as is a standalone works a lot better than the way it actually got implemented. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, like the, the vocal choir stuff, it just seemed like it would kind of give it more of that sort of serious kind of vibe to it. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the more not, I'd say the, uh, the, the emotion behind it is a little bit darker and kind of serious than what I usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I enjoyed, you know, writing it a lot. So. Definitely. Yeah, no, it's it's a really good track. I, I, I mm-hmm. just was definitely digging this one. Mm-hmm. So, final question, for me at least. Uh, were there any games that you worked on that didn't get released? I mean, we're, we're pretty big fans of gearing up for disappointment, if you will, because mm-hmm. it, we'll have composers on, they'll be like, oh yeah, I worked on this game, or I, you know, I worked on that game, and we'll be like, wait, that, never, that game never came out. And we're like, yeah. And then we're like, oh man, come on! Like, we totally could have... You know, listen to this awesome soundtrack, and you know the game. You know, would have been great or whatever, and and it just never came out. So, do you have any games like that that were supposed to get released but never did? Uh yeah, several, several. Oh wow! I mean, it's it's kind of an that that's not too unusual in the video game world. I'd say in the last the last several years, I've had I've had a I've had a number of those where I had created you know some music and um mm-hmm. it was working pretty well and then for other reasons you know they they just the forecasts were that it wouldn't make enough money so they like didn't release the game so it's it's pretty common and that's unfortunate i mean if you're on the staff then that's one thing but mm-hmm. i mean especially back in the day when you know it was kind of more i i, I kind of feel like back in the day it was more like a wild west sort of thing absolutely where, yeah you, you know what i mean like developers were flying by the seat of their pants yeah. If yeah. you haven't, if you didn't rent that game and you pull that little paper ticket and go in the case, you don't yeah. know what you're gonna get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now <laughs> nowadays, there's just so much more information online for people to go and uh, you know really check in, really dive in uh, deep and find out. You know, is this game gonna be worth a purchase? And I, I think with the hardcore gamer market, especially, uh, it's totally different than it was back then. So it's uh, it's always unfortunate to hear that. Uh, composers work on all this music that could see the light of day and it never does you know or if it does it's leaked afterwards kind of like oh yeah we were working on the sequel to you know whatever and never came out i I mean it goes back to i mean back in the in the genesis days i remember working on a couple of projects that never got that never got released um and anything in particular or there, I can't, I can't really name the names. Like, okay, like, they had like code names for me. Like, I don't even know what like the real names were. Right, right. Um, but they were, you know, they were major publisher games, and yeah, they for whatever reason they they got canceled before they got sent, put out. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to think when I was when I was with THQ, they were doing a the first when I first got there, we were working on a game of The Incredibles, another Pixar studio game. Uh-huh. And uh that one got canned right you know uh, right before. So That's um, a shame. That would have been fun. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That was it was another PSP game. That was I put a lot of work into that. It was sound design, not music, but um Right. Uh yeah. So I mean it's it's all too common, I'd say. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, it it, it kind of makes sense if if you know that the game is going to lose money or it's not going to hit its targets. Uh Oh, absolutely. 
Um, I think but, back in the day they were more trying anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were like, yeah. uh, let's make a, a shooter and, you know, let's, you know, make it so that you're, you know, eating other ships or something, you know, like yeah. they were just throwing everything. They were, yeah, they, really. they had a dartboard on the wall and they were just throwing anything they could at it yeah. to see what would stick. Even, you know, like, yeah, like Mario. It's like, all right, we got a plumber. <laughs> he's going to be he's jumping on turtles. We'll put him underground. Yeah. You give him a mushroom, he grows, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what were people thinking? Yeah. It's much more like Hollywood now. Like you, you kind of do a lot of focus testing. You don't. Oh yeah. Do, you, the risk, you know, the the investors don't want anything risky or new. It's all sequels. You know, I mean. Right, right. Life is less interesting, but. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you know, we've listened to some fantastic music, so we we definitely want to uh, thank you for all your hard work in the video game industry, John. Where can we find you if we if we wanted to to find any information out about you, or uh, you know, do you have a website or anything like that? Uh, no, I'm kind of old school about all that. I'm not. I'm not very. Uh, if you Google me, you're not going to find out much. <laughs> <laughs> but um, all right. But you can um, you can hit me up on LinkedIn or on Facebook, just as John Baker and you'll mm -hmm. find me. That's exactly how we did. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it here for us at Pixel Tunes Radio. I want to thank Brian for stepping in to guest host this episode. Thank you so much, dude. Yeah, my pleasure. I love being on the show. Much appreciated. Mm -hmm. So next episode, uh, we're actually going to be doing for episode 104, uh, we're going to be tackling Wario games. So it's going to be, uh, you know, going through all the history of the character Wario and, uh, you know, the ins and outs, the highs and lows, the, the was and the rios and, you know, all that sort of thing. So <laughs> that's going to be a really fun episode. We're really looking forward to that. Uh, my, our buddy Justin is going to be joining us for that episode. He will be the guest host for that one uh, in Ed's absence. And, uh, you know, we want to thank you for checking out Pixel Tunes Radio. Check us out at www.pixeltunesradio.com where you can get access to all of our episodes and also comment on episodes as well. You can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher. Actually, don't use Stitcher. Stitcher's very low quality. There's other podcatchers out there. Definitely recommend them. You can also check us out on facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Pixel Tunes Radio. That is our main group for pixel tunes that's where you can go and chat if you like this episode like have you played the toe jam mineral series what do you think of the gex games what do you think of the music to all of these games did the music for these mobile games surprise you were you kind of intrigued and you kind of want to you know if they were still around check these games out uh, leave a comment at facebook and let us know what you thought of the episode because feedback is definitely crucial to helping us mm -hmm. grow, helping us learn what you guys liked, what you didn't like, etc. Uh, check us out on Twitter for the handle at Pixeltunes Radio, as well as Instagram, same thing, at Pixeltunes Radio. You could check out my channel at youtube.com forward slash dongled, and that is where you'll find every episode of Pixeltunes Radio as well. Uh, it's more of a video format that you guys can check out. Uh, Ed's got a side project as well. Uh, his side podcast is called Impulse Project, and you can check that out. I also want to thank Brian for being on the show. You can check out his podcast, Pixel Stories, at www.pixelstories.net. And please do, your, do yourself a favor and tune in to his upcoming Toe Jam and Earl episode where he and his other co-host will be talking about uh, Toe Jam and Earl. Addi there's additional questions that we asked John Baker that are going to be in that 
episode as well so you can tune in to that i want to thank again john baker so much for joining us on this episode and we will see you all in two weeks on pixel tunes radio Thank you.